All right, we're going to get started. There's uh, copies of the psalm here if you need them. Um, did you get one? There you go, yep. There's copies of the psalm if you need them. Can you grab someone tape? Just spread them out. Thanks. Psalm 54. So we're gonna pray. Um, there was a there's a there was a fellow who worked with Chuck Garriott at Ministry to State, uh, retired Army veteran uh, Thomas Eddy, uh, that uh, Wes and I both knew him and, and know his wife Lorelai. I assume you know you remember the Eddies. Did you know the Eddies? Yeah. And so uh, Thomas died. He had a long bout with cancer. He was only in his fifties or so. Just died on the twenty second. So we're gonna pray for. Uh, his family. I'm, I know it impacts Chuck too in ministry to state. So I'll pray for them and then we're going to jump into the class. So let's pray. We thank you Lord God in heaven for uh, your kindness to us through this week and how you've watched over us and, and you've blessed us. What a beautiful frigid winter we've been having Lord. Um, but we are grateful. Grateful for sunshine and a little bit of sunburn and some vitamin D. Lord um, we pray for the Eddie family. I know that uh, Lorelai is held up strong in the midst of all of it, and yet, finally, Tom Thomas is gone. We pray, Lord, that you would be with uh, Lorelai and her family, and that you would strengthen her hand, encourage her hand in the Lord, and the family as a grief. Lord, we, we are not as people without hope. We know that the one who rose from the dead on the third day, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, has triumphed over death. And that when he returns, he will defeat his last enemy that is death. And tell them, Lord, this little lamb of yours, Thomas, is now in the Good Shepherd's arms. Be the comfort of his wife and his family. Bless us now, Lord, as we jump into this class, as we get into Psalm 54. We pray for your guidance. We pray for encouragement. And uh, we ask you, Lord, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are at Psalm 54, so hopefully if you, got a, if you don't have a Bible in front of you or don't, didn't bring one, there, is pa- there are papers with it on there, larger print for those of us who have bad eyes. Some of us have them worse than others now. Um, so I'm going to read Psalm 54, starting with that inscription, because that inscription is actually the first two verses in the Hebrew Bible. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David... When the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil, to, uh, the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, all caps, Yahweh. O Yahweh, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So as you... We've read Psalm 54. Do you pick up anything in there that maybe is there? Are there any repeated refrains inside of it? Or is there any connections maybe to a previous psalm? Yes, Steve. Uh, the two 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. What else? Anybody else? Any other things? Great. Okay. So notice where Psalm 54 is. Psalm 52 is talking about uh, Doeg, the Edomite. Psalm 53 is about the fool, the Nabal. Right? And so it's very interesting that fool in Hebrew is Nabal, which takes our minds back to 1 Samuel 25, to Nabal, whose wife Abigail says, his folly is his name and folly is his game. Right? That's pretty funny. And then now we come to the Ziphites. We have the Ziphites here. All right, so... I'm calling the, this one from grief to gladness. If you just watch the flow of Psalm 54, there's a huge shift right after you get through verse 5 and you get to verse 6, there's a change. And it does take us from grief to gladness. And I'll point that out more when we get there. So the inscription, as I said, takes up the first two verses of the Hebrew. So if you had a Hebrew Bible in front of you, there would actually be nine verses to Psalm 54 instead of seven because the inscription is the first two verses. And so to the choir mass with stringed instruments, so this is, of course, meant to be a, uh, used in public worship, a masculine of David. Again, we're not, not totally sure what masculine is, if it's the tone or if it's the, the uh, emotional mood of the music or whatever it is, but a masculine of David. And then here's the historical statement. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And that takes you immediately to 1 Samuel 29. So hold Psalm 54 and go to 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 23. And as you go to 1 Samuel 23, starting at verse 19, is that this particular scene. And so, let me get there. Um, 23, verse 19. So Saul's pursuing David. Uh, Jonathan has just come to him and has just said to David, uh, back up in verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, which is an interesting statement coming from Jonathan. You know, he realizes that his part of Saul's dynasty, it's over, right? And that David is king. There's, there's some real potency in, in Jonathan's submission to the Lord in this statement. You will be the king. Um, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows, also knows this. And so he strengthens his hand, he encourages him. And then in verse 19, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire. So Saul begins to chase David around that region where the Ziphites were. And um, while he's with his men in the wilderness, verse uh, verse 24, with the men in the wilderness of Moan and the Arabah, the south of Jeshimon, Saul sent his men to seek him out. Uh, and then all of a sudden the Philistines come and Saul leaves. David is rescued at the last part. So before we go to chapter 26, what I want you to realize is that the Ziphites are David's own people. 
They're of the tribe of Judah. These are David's people. And what did David's people just do to David? They betrayed him. They sold him out. I mean, can you imagine how hard that is if your family sells you out, right? Your relatives sell you out. Well, the scene comes up again. So it's, uh, it's um, in chapter 23, the Philistines are, t- he's told the Philistines are on the border. And so Saul runs after the Philistines. There's this break in there and David is delivered. Well, the scene is actually repeated again when you get to chapter 26. So just flip over to 1 Samuel 26. I won't go into all the details, but chapter 26 of 1 Samuel is where is the same exact scene. The Ziphites are recorded as having said this again. Is not David among us here in this area. Saul goes to chase him, but now there's more detail. The, the editor, as he's writing about this, gives you more detail. And part of the detail is this, is that Saul at night is bivouacking down in the valley and David sneaks down into the camp, pulls up the spear and a jug, runs back up, and then he gets up there and he starts taunting um, Saul's general. And he says, this is the spear, the jug, and so forth. And Saul says, you're more righteous than I am. And then he leaves. Okay? And so it's still the same scene. There's just more detail. There's not a contradiction. There's just more detail. And it's at this point then Saul would have gone off to the Philistines. And so that's the backstory behind the psalm itself. It's, there's some similarities in this sense. When you go to Jeremiah chapter 11, 21 through 12, 6, Jeremiah, who is from the land, the, the town of Anathoth, God says to him, your own people are about to betray you. The Anathothite. You say that three times fast. They're about to betray you. And so Jeremiah, is, his guts are just churning. You just can't miss it when you read Jeremiah 11 and 12, right? So it's a very similar situation. David's own people have betrayed him. And that's the story behind Psalm 54. Any questions before we move on? Okay. So hopefully that'll help you as you read back through the psalm to, to realize what he's saying. So from grief to gladness, I'm going to break it down this way. Verse 1 and 2, a double request. Verse 3, dreadful renegades. Verse 4 through 5, defiant resilience. And then verse 6 through 7, definitive resolution. Classic Mike Philberisms there, sorry. DR, 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 DR. All right, so double request is in verses 1 through 2. So as you look at verse 1 through 2, what I mean by double request is that uh, um, in verse 1, there's a parallel request, and then in verse 2, there's a parallel request, okay? So verse 1 has a, by parallel, do you know what I mean by parallel? Right, so... The, the two lines go together. Save me, vindicate me. That's verse 1. And then verse 2, hear me, give ear. Right? So that's the double, it's a double request. Line 1 and line 2 go together. But verse 1 and 2 are the ultimate double request. Okay? And so just as you see it in the English Standard Version, the ESV, the vocative, O God begins both verse 1 and verse 2 in the Hebrew, showing that there, there are two separate requests. I mean, not separate, distinct, but I mean, two requests going on here in doublets. Sorry, that's a logistical thing, okay? But I hope that helps you some. All right? Any questions before I move on? You like that? 
All right, so what is being asked for? When you look at verse 1, what is being asked for? Salvation, vindication, right? So remember, that's a doublet, so those go together, right? So it's not necessarily a soul salvation. What kind of salvation is he looking for? Whatever goes with vindication, right? Huh? Something probably very physical, right? Rescue me from these rapscallions, right? That basically is it. Right? Okay. So in the Hebrew, there's a poetic overlap between save me, hashanei, hoshieni, and vindicate me, teraneni. You like that? But there's an audible play, poetic play on those two Hebrew words. Save me, vindicate me. And this, the audible, audibleness of it, of that play, would seal it in the ears that there's a deep connection between the first line and the second line. That when he's talking about saving, he's talking about vindicate me, right? So show that I'm actually in the right and not in the wrong as I'm being treated. Does that make sense? I don't want to overpound this thing, but it's fun to watch, to read, and you see it and you go, wow, that it means something more textured than what we normally think of. Yes? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the idea. That's what I was trying to get at. You know, because it's more than just deliver me from this, but actually show that I was wrongfully being chased down or wrongfully accused. I was with you the whole time. I knew it all the time, Moose. Did I hear? Yes. It can, yes. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Very good, Earl. So it can be a precatory, actually praying for God to step in and bring justice and judgment. And so the request in verse 2 is for what? What's the request in verse 2? Hear me, right? Hear my prayer, hear, give ear to my words. I love the language, give ear to my words. Right? It's very picturesque. Your wife says that, guys, to you a lot of times. Give ear to me, son, let me talk to you, come here, right? And so... I'm sure Bill Avon does this to you a lot, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> You've seen the little meme or whatever it's called that comes out and says, you know, uh, um, it was kind of weird. My, my, my wife starts, I mean, I just kind of, the conversation began with, why don't you ever listen to me, right? You know, the idea is that she's been talking to him all this whole time and he finally comes to at one moment, you know. All right, so it is, it's asking for God to hear his prayer and give ear to him. So David knows that God hears and that God has promised to hear. So why this request? Sometimes it helps to get out of your system. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, right. Very likely, yes. Yep. Yeah. 
I think it's very instructive for us that God's already promised to hear. And so I have actually heard some Christians say, well, if it's already promised in the Bible, you don't, don't need to ask for it. Just believe, right? Well, but here you have an example. God's already promised to hear His people. And the fact that David is still asking for God to hear him and give ear to him, I think is right with what Brandon was saying. One of the things Brandon was pointing out was to get it out of your system. God gives us these words. Here, in your grievous moments, you're going to pray, and this is what it's going to sound like, so I'm going to give you words so you can do this. Yes. Yeah. Right, right, right. There's a humility in it. Yeah, not a cockiness. Peter? Right, right. Yes, Moose? Right, yes, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Fred? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Right. So I, I think you're right, Moose. I think that that's kind of the idea as well is that uh, there is, it's a courtesy thing or it's an, it's an honor and humility thing. But at the same point, you, you're inviting. I really do want you in. Right. So please come help me. Right. So give ear to my prayer and hear me. Yeah. So in the middle of the muck and the betrayal, it feels like one is unnoticed by heaven. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. A few of you have, it feels like one is drowning in the pool and all you can do before you go under one last time is gas. Help! Right? So I've told you the story about drowning. You all remember that? Ten years old, I knew how to swim. Jumped off the diving board. We just moved to Moore and went to the YMCA and jumped off the diving board and for some reason I couldn't swim. It all left. And I was thrashing about. <gasps> You're swallowing all this chlorinated water, you know. Go! And the lifeguard, here's my cry for help before I go under one last time. And she jumps in, pulls me out, and rescues me, right? But it's just like that. When you're in the middle of it, you're just, you're gasping for life and air. And so really, hear, hear my prayer, give ear to my prayer, is that cry for help. And so, um, I think that verse 2 is very fitting and it gives us an appreciation for also how gut-wrenching this whole affair is for David. And he is crying out for help. Okay. Anybody else in verse 1 and 2? Yeah. Saul? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's that. But then also think about the questions too. Why would my own people betray me? It's interesting, by the way, just as uh, answering something Anna asked me about last night, is this is one of the last time the Ziphites are ever mentioned again. It's just in this betrayal story. That's all they're remembered for is they, they betrayed David. 
All right, so as I'll say in the sermon today, grab hold of the Psalms with all the grief and the gusto you have. I mean, that's the idea behind these words being recorded and preserved for us. And then you see that where David's situation is and how he cries out, that's the same thing for us. Grab a hold of the Psalms with all the grief and the gusto you have. So listen for that in the sermon. So then verse 3, the dreadful renegades. Uh, there's nearly an identical verse to verse 3. It's almost, I mean, it's identical except for one word. Verse 3 here says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set God before them. In Psalm 86, it says, For insolent men have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So, I mean, just identical except for the instead of strangers, it says insolent men. And so, the word stranger can and often does in the, in the especially the Torah and the Pentateuch and the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, stranger often refers to foreigners, those who are not covenant members. But if you look and realize that it's also a parallelism, these are strangers who are ruthless men, and you realize the context, he's talking about his own clan members, his own tribal members who have turned against him, then you realize that the stranger here is these are covenant members who are acting like foreigners, right? And they're ruthless men, okay? Um, that's what you get in that middle part of the verse then, the ruthless men. They're treating him as if he's an outcast or, that, or they're acting as if they're Philistines. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what are the three actions that the, the insolent men, the strangers, the ruthless men, what are the three actions that they're noted for in verse 3? They've risen against him. I'm sorry? Say it. See, take his life. What else? Yeah, and they're not following God. So notice all three of those. Yes? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, he didn't... They just went to him on their own. He didn't ask. They were under his, his rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how do the three actions fold together? When you look at the three actions of verse 3, how do they fold together? Risen against me, seek my life, don't set God before themselves. How do those three fold together? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I do too. Nope. It's it's secret knowledge. You have to be a Gnostic. It's a it's a text it's a text it's a textual issue in the Hebrew. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Between stranger and insolent men. Yeah. Do you see what I was trying to save you from, Steve? Thank you. I'm vindicated. So David's double request in verses 1 through 2, David's double request in verses 1 through 2 is about these people for these reasons. The reason why he's asking these things in verse 1 and 2 is because these people, this is what you were talking about, because these people are doing this, right? And so that's just, just showing you the connections between the two. Um, to pray for vindication, to pray, and this, uh, some, uh, Earl, you were talking about imprecatory. To pray for vindication, salvation, and justice in situations like this are good and right. And when we pray like this, we're asking for things that may well bring about, on the one side, the salvation of our tormentors, praise the Lord. Right? We ask God to hear us, we ask Him to vindicate us. It may mean they become believers. That would be great. But, if they will not turn around, then this prayer may actually result in other things that will include their suffering or them receiving the consequences of their actions. Just look down quickly at verse 4 and 5, and that's where you get to verse 5. He will return evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. Right. So there are consequences. They will either become believers or they will receive the results uh, and the consequences of their actions. Which brings us to a set of cautions voiced by D.A. Carson in a very important book that I recommend to you, and I've recommended to you before, How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Here's what he said. Quote, The trouble with such justice and fairness, however, is that if it were truly just and truly fair and as prompt as we demand, we would soon be begging for mercy, for love, for forgiveness, for anything but justice. But very often what I really mean when I ask for justice is implicitly, one, that this justice is to be dispensed immediately. Two, that this justice in this instance would be justice in this instance, but not necessarily in every instance. And three, that in this instance I have grasped the situation correctly. First, the Bible assures us that God is a just God and that justice will be done in the end and will be seen to be done but when we urgently plead for justice, we usually mean something more than that. We mean we want vindication now. Second, to ask for such instantaneous justice in every instance is inconceivable. It would too often find me on the wrong side. Too often find me implicitly inviting my own condemnation. But justice instantaneously applied only when it favors me is not justice at all. Selective justice that favors one individual above another is simply another name for corruption. And no one wants a corrupt God. And third, when I plead so passionately for justice, it is usually because I think I understand the situation pretty well. I wouldn't be quite so crass as actually to say I need to explain to God to explain it to God, but that is pretty close to the way I act. I find that a very helpful set of cautions, right? So, yes? 
Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mike. Yeah, not all of our enemies are God's enemies. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I, I think I appreciate one of the things you were saying was that justice is slow. There's a book out on human trafficking and how Christians can be involved and what they do can be part of to actually slow down the sex trafficking, human trafficking. But in the middle of the book, the authors make a very, very helpful statement. They say justice takes time. It takes a long time to get the case together and all that. And the reason... The context of why she put it this way is because sometimes, and she had a couple of examples in mind, where Christians get in the way of justice because they try to put justice out themselves and therefore the case gets blown to smithereens. And I thought that was very helpful, as you were saying it too, just reminded me of that. Justice takes time, and so it's not our timing. It's what really is just timing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Great. All right, so defiant reliance, verses 4 through 5. So how does David describe the one in whom he trusts, verse 4 and 5? Out loud so I can hear you because I'm having problems hearing today. My helper. Anybody else? Upholder of my life. Okay. There's something else. Yes, a God of faithfulness. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Yeah, He's, yeah, yeah. He puts it back on their own heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, good. So David's reliance on this God, and notice up to this point, it's always in the Hebrew, it's Elohim and Adonai. God's personal name is not going to be used until we get to uh, the last two verses. And so it's Elohim and Adonai. Uh, so God, David's reliance upon this God builds up in him a defiant resilience and a, re, and a defiant reliance. How so? So you look at verse 4 and 5. How does it build up this reliance and this, this defiant reliance and defiant re, re, resilience? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm up to my eyeballs in this muck, but I know this about you. Right? What a great place to be. And all the way through the Psalms, you keep running across that. This anchoring of ourselves in the storm. Now, this is who you are. This is the kind of God you are. And that's what keeps us steady when everything else is blowing to pieces, right? Yeah, good. 
Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Other than I'm just in distress, and then after, and then, well, wait till we get to the last two verses. See if we can answer it then. So, what is David's final request? As you look at verse four and five, what's his final request? Put an end to them, okay? And your faith was put an end to them, okay? So now I want you to double check and keep this thought in your head for a minute. Double check the verb tenses in verses one through five. What are the verb tenses? Okay, I'm talking grammar and everybody's eyes just glazed over. Especially Moose's. Present tense, right? Present and past tense, right? So remember that when we get to the last two verses in a few minutes, okay? The verb tense is present and past tense. Um, So now we're being prepped for the definitive resolution of verse 6 and 7. But first, just because Mike Wells is in here, two Cajun pastors. Reverend Boudreaux was the part-time pastor of the local Cajun Baptist Church, and Pastor Thibodeau was the minister of the Covenant Church across the road. They were both standing by the road, pounding a sign into the ground that read, now Mike will be able to read this interpretive for us, the end is near, turn yourself round, now afford, be too late. As a car sped past them, the driver leaned out his window and he saw the sign and he yelled, you religious nuts! And from the curve, they heard, as the car went around the curve, from the curve, they heard screeching tires and and a big splash. Boudreaux turns to Thibodeau and asks, do you think maybe the sign should just say, bridge out? (laughs) Did you like that, Mike? (laughs) Too Too many words, yeah. So as you're reading Psalm 54, it is a bridge out sign, okay? And not a lot of other stuff in there, but all right, let's move on. So definitive resolutions, verse 6 and 7. Now what are the verb tenses in verse 6 and 7? Future, okay? Or, or, yeah, I will sacrifice, I will give thanks to your name for it is good, right? past tense, he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. There's a verbal shift, tense shift, when you get to verse 6 and 7, okay? And I think the shift is to let you know that God answered his prayer. This is the moment where after he's snuck down in the camp and pulled up the spear and the jug, and he's shown the general, Saul's general, that he was asleep on the job, and then the, Saul has heard the Philistines are coming and he leaves. So it's that moment after he's left, David ends the psalm with this huge sigh of relief. You've come through for me. You've done it. Right? And I think that that may be the nuance, John, to answer your question, why it goes from uh, Elohim and Adonai to now Yahweh. Because this is very, I mean, all this was personal, but now God has rescued him very personally. And I think that that's just the, the difference in the nuance. So, oh, I didn't mention this. So what happened? He's been rescued. Just say it. He's been rescued. Great, thank you. So think back to the moment. We already just talked about this. Think back to that moment in 1 Samuel 23, 19 through 25, and 1 Samuel 26. It's that moment where... Um, 
Saul now is no longer there. He's actually, he actually declared to David, no, you're more righteous than me. And he packs up to leave. And then the Philistines are on the border and he goes off to chase the Philistines. It's that moment in there is where verse 6 and 7 come in. Any questions or anything else of verse 6 and 7? I would say one of the things we need to do is we need to spend just as much time. We love to tell God all of our problems, which is fine and is good. But we also need to say how often we really appreciate Him and actually say, this is what you did for me. Yes, Fred. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Yes. Absolutely. So I think that the that um, one of the things is you draw from Psalm 54, one of the things is we ought to spend some time actually when we see God answering prayer, say, you answered my prayer. Woo! And pray and give thanks, right? And be specific, right? How often do you do that? I mean, I'm just, I don't, this is a rhetorical question. Don't answer me. But how often do you do it? You know, how often when, um, especially us boomers, I don't know what it is about us boomers. We're not very vocal about our Thanksgiving. We very rarely praise our subordinates who might be Gen X or Gen millennials or whatever. We don't, spend a, we don't do that a lot. We just expect, just like our parents expected, just go do it. Get it done. And you get it done, and that's the satisfaction. Yet there's, a, there's a value of actually saying, you know, you, don't, you did a good job. And just giving gratitude. So it's the same way with God, right? Lord, you did a great job. Wow! Right? Great. All right, any, anything else on the psalm? We're almost to the end. Early. Imagine that. The end is near. So this is a great book. I've used it. I've referred to it before. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop. And um, this is not a lament psalm, but, but what he says about lament actually goes well with this psalm. Prayers of lament take faith. This is what Fred was just referring to, right? Prayers of lament take faith. Lament is the song you sing believing that one day God will answer and restore. Anyone can cry, but it takes faith to turn to God in lament. The focus shifts from the historical works of God to the very character of God. That's what you see going on in uh, like verse 4 and 5. He, he, you can see him rehearsing the character of God. Hurting people are given permission to grieve, but not aimlessly or selfishly. The biblical language of lament is able to redirect weeping people to what is true despite the valley they are walking through. I just that was a really good statement. And Psalm 54 is like that. You know, as you're walking through that valley, it's not an aimlessness. It actually gives us some direction. So there you go. So thinking about David being turned on by his family. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Because the writer of Hebrews, without quoting Psalm 54, brings in some of this. 
So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to, to whom? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then he goes on talking about our struggle with sin and so forth. But I think that's very, very helpful. You run this race looking to Jesus, and you consider him who endured worse things than you've ever experienced, even in your own family, right? And you, you do that. Why? Why do you consider Jesus? So that it saves you from your own weariness and faint-heartedness, right? Great. So any, any questions or anything on Psalm 54, anything else? It's a short psalm, easy to get to through. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's rehearsing the character of God while he's in the midst of it. When, you, when you're in a stressful situation like that, and you, if, you, if you're praying, and I hope you are, where do you spend most of your time focused when you're praying? The problems. Look how insurmountable this problem is. Don't you see how bad this is, right? The other side, I think probably most of us probably also talk about ourselves a lot. I feel really grieved. I'm I'm betrayed, you know. And then we try to tell God that our interpretation of the event is His interpretation. Have you ever done that? Right? This is is how you should see it because I got it right in my head. That's kind of what D.A. Carson was pointing out. We don't know the whole story, right? And yet, what a good, helpful exercise to step back and go, well... Here's the situation, but let me spend time thinking about rehearsing who you are while I'm going through it. Right? Great. Yes, Mike. Yes, like the Lord's Prayer. Right? Most people are just like numb through the first part. Hallowed be thy name. Whatever, you know. Thy kingdom come. Whatever. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. I don't have any, so let's move on. Deliver me from evil. Right? We, we go to those immediately, right? That's where we wake up. Mm-hmm. And that means that when we're struggling, we have to be 
Yeah, and I would go, I would add to that, uh, if someone from, if you're, if you're, if a sister or brother calls you up and says, I am going through the thick of it, here's my situation, would you pray with me? Don't try to fix them! Just sit down with them. Pray with them. Weep with them. And if they say to you, how do I get out of this? Then okay, they open the door, right? This is kind of what, you know, having Michael come to you and say, Dad, would you please, right? That's different. But we want to go fix everybody. At least some of us do. I'm a fixer. I, I get it. But most times people don't want you to fix them. They just, want to, they just want you to grieve with them and just pray with them. Right? Anyways, anybody else? Steve, did you? Okay. Thank you. That I'm a fixer? Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, so in uh, Tim and Kathy Keller's little book, The Songs of Jesus, they're... At the end of Psalm 54, they have this prayer, which I really, I'm going to end with this prayer, but let me read it to you first. Lord, evil destroys itself. If you think back to verse 4 and 5, that's the outcome of evil, that God will bring it to its own ends. Evil destroys itself because you are sovereign and this is your world. So we're rehearsing some things about God here. Deep in my heart, I don't believe that. Oh, a little confession. And so I get tempted to do wrong myself and I get too discouraged when I see others getting away with it. I praise you that because of who you are, evil cannot prevail. Amen. So that's going to be our prayer. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, evil destroys itself because you are sovereign and this is your world. Deep in my own heart, deep in all of our hearts, we don't often believe that. And so we become tempted to do wrong ourselves. And we get too discouraged when we see others getting away with it. We want to retaliate and take charge and pound it out of them. Forgive us, Lord. We praise you that because you are who you are, evil cannot prevail. When we go to look at the cross, as the writer of Hebrews says, we consider Jesus. And evil did the worst that evil could do. It was religious evil. It was orthodox, self-righteous evil. It was political evil. It was familial and social evil. Threw everything it could, could at him. And the devil too. And he rose from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. And he defeated sin and he defeated the devil. Lord, we know that evil cannot prevail. And in that hope, Lord, we leave this room and we prepare to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.